Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's September 2000. Dutch backpacker Rob Janssen is working as a bartender in the media village at the Sydney Olympic Games. There was actually a camera guy from Channel 7 who was in the media village who recognised me of the children's fire. And he was really discreet about it. He just came up to me and said, like, we know each other. There could be, but he said, so you were in the children's fire? And said, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I was there as well. So that was weird to me, but... Uh, he never told anybody else, or I never got any questions of any media people. So that was really nice. It's been a terrible year. Just three months earlier, he'd survived the Palace Backpacker Hostel fire in Childers. But in Sydney, he was living the dream, and things seemed to be getting back on track. Or so he thought. Came back from work, I got out of the bus stop, and I walked up to my hostel and passed a bar or a cafe or whatever and it was they were just throwing out their glass bottles into a bin but they were doing it in the same time as the glass was exploding during the fire and i i heard that and i just got goosebumps all over me and i was scared and i just put my hands over my ears and start running and I realized that uh, there was still a long way to go for me. He was a popular figure around the hostel, a tall good-looking lad. Like most, he heard in passing there was work picking on the farms in Childers, so he headed north to escape the trappings of a party lifestyle in the capital cities. He'd been there for a month. As I remember, I was picking zucchinis and squash. And I'm quite tall. And when you're picking zucchinis and squash, it's not like a pleasant thing to do because they're low to the ground. So uh, every evening I would lay down on the hard floor in the Childers Backpackers Hostel to rest my back because it was killing me. There was a strong Dutch contingent at the palace. They bonded over memories of home and the European football championships being played in Holland and Belgium at the time. Uh, European championship football was on, so it was super social at the time. We would wake up like uh, three at night or four at night and um, the pub would open across the street and uh, we would go there, the English people, the Dutch people from wherever, and we would watch the football games uh, early in the morning. And then when finished, we would get a shower, have a breakfast and go for work. Yeah. That's Yoki Vissa. He'd had a busy four months since arriving in Australia. He was partying in Sydney and Melbourne and doing trips back and forth before spontaneously jumping in a car with a Canadian he'd met 
and taking up work on a tobacco farm. I would be like, oh, that sounds cool, let's do that. So uh, it was all adventures, not planned at all, and just go with the flow. Money ran out in Brisbane, so Childers was a recharge for both the soul and the bank account. And I can still remember because I forgot my bag uh, on the bus, so they had to uh, send it back, and I still got the, the tag saying second uh, of the uh, second <laughs> of June, and the third of June it uh, was brought back to me in Childers. So I know exactly when I was in Childers. He took up a job on an avocado farm and struck up a friendship with Rob immediately. They shared a connection with another Dutchman, 22-year-old Sebastian Vesterveld. He only lived about like 20 minutes away from where I was living at the moment, uh, back in Holland. One of his best friends was a guy that I used to go to school with. So that's a small world. And we both uh, had the same hobbies, like uh, soccer. And he had the same age as me. So yeah, we had a lot of common things uh, to talk about. Just a very easygoing guy. Uh, so yeah, we hanged out quite a bit. So you meet a lot of people during traveling, but in the end there are like a few people that you can really connect with. And Sebastian was a guy that I could really connect with uh, just because of his kind personality. Turns out Rob and Sebastian played junior soccer against each other when they were growing up in the Netherlands. Small world, huh? Now Sebastian had met 19-year-old Brit Adam Rowland on their travels through Asia, and they headed to Childers together. He was telling me that uh, it was like his little brother and he would always take care of him. can remember him just as uh, also a kind, nice guy. Adam was from the famous battle town of Hastings in the southeast of England. A mad football fan, Arsenal was his team. Gary Hyde was his best friend at high school. We were put in the same class, not having met before, but uh, didn't know anyone else, so... We hit it off straight away and we're, we're good mates from then on. What was, what was it about Adam that uh, you think that you two kind of gravitated towards each other? I don't know, probably it's got to be a sense of humour, I guess. He was uh, seriously, seriously funny and in a, in a completely unusual way as well. Not, not like uh, anyone I've ever met since. They hadn't long finished high school when Adam told Gary he was heading to Australia. It was somewhat of a surprise, out of character perhaps. Yeah, he was really excited. I think uh, he didn't have a set plan as such of what career he wanted to do or anything like that. So I think he kind of maybe wanted to find himself a little bit. That may have been why, you know, he made the decision to go and travel. He spread his wings and in Sebastian he found a good friend abroad. He was about six months into his new adventures when he reached Childers, and the Dutch contingent took him in as one of their own Orange Army. The night of the fire, Yoki had headed out to the nearby caravan park for a farewell drink with another Dutch friend. There was an open invitation for Rob back at the hostel. When I came back to the hostel, they invited me to eat pancakes, and Sebastian was one of the guys that invited me. And there's only one thing in the world that I won't ever, ever eat, and that's pancakes. So I told him that, like, no, I'm never going to eat pancakes, so thank you. Uh, so we had a laugh about that. And um, after that, I think I went up to get some takeaway uh, somewhere in Childers. And after I had my dinner, 
I think I, I went back to the dorm because uh, I stayed in the dorm. And I think I listened to some music and uh, went to bed early that evening, like most evenings, because you're exhausted from working in, in the fields. And the next day is always an early day. So I went to bed, I think, at maybe nine or ten, something like that. It was the last time he would see Sebastian or Adam alive. What struck me when I was listening back to these interviews was this comment from Yoki about his memories with Sebastian and Adam. I still have like a picture hanging uh, also in Childers in the backpackers. And it's a picture that together we are making uh, pancakes uh, in the kitchen. So that's one of the memories I've had and that's on the... uh, on a picture and actually on the wall there in the backpackers. Different night, but pancakes. It's the little things you remember, huh? Adam was one of the youngest in the hostel that night, just 19 years old. He and his best mate Gary bonded over football and a very diverse taste in music. He was, you know, really, really well-loved character. I don't think anyone ever had a bad word to say about him at a big circle of friends or different circles of friends if you like yeah no one would have a bad word to say about him everyone was in shock we were all obviously young at the time as well and uh, you know at that time not not many people have suffered loss of a friend or or family member at that at that age um so yeah huge shock to everybody and i think everyone was a bit disbelieving a bit like like myself as well the first couple of days while we were waiting for news to come through took a good number of days for the news to sort of filter through from Australia back to here and confirm it. Yeah, yeah, just a horrible time, really. And then and the not knowing the not knowing details and certainties as well was pretty hard for everyone. Rob was staying downstairs in the dormitory room where there were 20 beds in all. He changed rooms just days earlier. The reason for me to change rooms was the soccer championship because normally you prefer a smaller room uh, instead of a dorm because of the noise that people make, of course. But I moved rooms because of the many Dutch people that were staying in the dorm and just for the laughs and that, that we could watch the football championship in the morning. He'd previously been sharing with two others, an Indian Australian named Vishal Tomar and Robert Paul Long, the man who, hours later, would set fire to the palace and become Australia's most wanted fugitive. He would be staying there, but he normally would sleep in the, uh, in the TV room. He didn't sleep in the room. He always slept in the TV room on a, on a couch. Though. So uh, he, we only saw him in the room when he needed something from his uh, back. So... Uh, We didn't have a lot of contact with him. Begrudgingly, we'll talk more about Long a little later in the podcast. Now, despite being somewhat creeped out by his much older roommate, Rob's switch to the dormitory really was all because of the banter that went with watching the European Championships, which would prove to be a potentially life-saving move. I heard people yelling already and uh, I heard like glass exploding or breaking and then I thought it was like a fight going on or something that was my first idea that I had then somebody in a dorm uh, walked across the room and opened the door 
towards the hallway where the fire was and I saw this red glare and he started yelling fire 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 and then I, I still was you know half awake so I thought like, oh I want to go back to bed but of course you realize you have to get up and, and run and uh, we were lucky that we were in the dorm so we we only had to move a bunk bed and there was an old door there that wasn't being used but we could open it and that gave us access to the street so we had a fairly easy way out compared to the people who were upstairs they were among the first to escape in fact rob even managed to take his backpack full of clean laundry with him but then he was overcome by a measure of guilt i ran back inside actually to to see if all the people were out of the beds. Like I only ran back into the dorm because I never thought about anybody else, of course, when I woke up. And then I realized like, oh, maybe there's still people asleep. So I ran back in and then halfway through running through the dorm and checking all the beds, I realized, I thought like, what I'm doing here, that the building is on fire. Then I also saw that everybody was up and all the beds were empty. I ran back outside again and then you just, watch it happen. You you go numb. You don't think anything anymore. That's a a very brave thing to do, mate, to go back in. Yeah, you don't think about it at the moment. It's like, you know, that's what you do. You know, you you just want to make sure that everybody is out and uh, and I have to say that the conditions in the dorm were still fine. There was more smoke already in the dorm uh, bef- when I left it. So there was maybe a, a minute or two in between before leaving it the first time and going back in. But um, uh, it, to me, uh, I like what I said, like halfway um, checking all the beds, I, I realized what I was doing. So I, uh, yeah, I never gave it any thought to, to go back in. Inside, Yoki is orchestrating an escape plan of his own. He was upstairs in room two. He's sharing with Tony Gora from England and Korean Jim Kim. Tony and Jim leave through the veranda, but Yoki makes a decision to stay a little longer. I actually stood in the room and I was thinking, okay, there's a fire. Um, And I was looking at the floor and feeling the floor if I could feel warmth like just to sort of try to find out where it was and then I was thinking okay what should I do now what's the most important and I had like this uh, bum bag around my waist then I got one of my uh, backpacks and I threw it over uh, the balcony went back inside at that moment I could hear uh, screams and people in the hallway so I opened up the door and all the smoke was coming in like really thick and really dark so you couldn't see nothing Um, I lie down on the ground and I just started screaming follow my voice uh, come here here's the door follow my voice come here and I know that I heard something close so I crawled up like halfway inside the hallway couldn't see nothing was just dark and smoke so eyes closed and then I felt something and I grabbed it and I pulled it inside and it was Neil. Neil is Neil Griffith. You may recall we spoke about Neil back in episode three. 
He's the backpacker who spotted Robert Long on a computer in the hostel lounge area just before the fire erupted. What happened next is something you'll hear about later in the podcast. In any case, to this day, he still credits Yoki with saving his life at that very moment. Neil was uh, staying sort of across my uh, my room. Uh, so I got him in, closed the door, and Neil was like, his, his face was totally black off the smoke. So I talked to him, you're okay? And uh, he said, no, I'm, I think I'm okay. I said, okay, let's go outside. And um, yeah, we went out on the veranda, and I talked to him for a while, and I said, okay, go to the others, because in the meanwhile, I saw there were more people gathering on the veranda. So we went on the veranda, I went back inside again. The next memory I have is me lying on the ground in my room filled with smoke and just listening with my ear against the door if I could still hear any voices, any screaming, but I couldn't hear anything anymore. So I'm not sure how long I did that, but at one moment I thought like, okay, everyone is out. So I got back on the veranda and from there I looked around and some people uh, were climbing over to the other side. It's at that point the fire brigade arrives with a ladder to help people down. And he climbed up and he looked at me and he said, OK, uh, we're going to go in downstairs and you make sure everyone goes down this ladder. So, OK, you go down and I'll arrange this. So I'm not sure how many people were up again, but I think somewhere between 30, 40 people maybe were standing there. So I was yeah, helping everyone down. You could already see a lot of people in shock. Probably I was in shock at myself, but I still try to uh, think clear, you know, and help everyone down. And some people would climb down, others would have no idea how to get down. So I would talk to them like, okay, hold my hand, uh, look in my eyes, don't look down. And yeah, I got everyone down. Tia Poe, who bravely told her story back in episode five, was one of those that Yoki assisted. I was in shock and I, Yoki was holding the ladder and I think he, he saw her and he's like, it's all right, Tia, you can do this. And so I went over and climbed down and I think he was the last one off the building making sure that everyone else had gotten down, which was pretty amazing really under the, under the circumstances. He played a big role in helping a lot of people that night, didn't he, Yoki? He did. He was really calm. He just calmed me down. It's just like this this gentleness about him that was just like, it's okay, you, you can do this. Yeah, because I just felt really out of my body and not in control of my body. It's a long way down. It's a big building. So it feels like if you fall, you definitely break something um, without a doubt. And then it's the last one. I can remember that I looked back at, uh, at my room. And all the flames were like just coming out. Everyone was just flames. So then, yeah, I uh, took the ladder down and I saw my backpack lying there. So I walked to my backpack and I opened it. And the only thing that was in it was a sweater. So I put the sweater on and all the other things were still in my room because I was already there for about three weeks. So I totally forgot that like all my stuff were just inside. There was nothing in my backpack anymore, but it was like very good to have like just a sweater in. So then I walked to the other side of the street. Um, everyone was sort of standing around the pub. Everything was, 
yeah, everyone was in panic. Um, you could see the fear in a lot of people's eyes, uh, the disbelief, not just looking like, oh, what's going on? What's happening? Um, yeah. We heard firefighter Hayden Whitaker talk about this role Yoki played in the first episode of the series. Um, I know the first lady will go down and I know the last boat to come down. I actually, the last bloke, I've seen him a few times since then, a big, tall, dark-headed fella, thin-set bloke. Yeah, don't ask me his name, but yeah. I remember about raising the big fellow because he was laid back on the roof with one arm on both of the power wires running out to the power pole like, like a hammock. And I raised him and said, you're the last to get down. You can look after everyone else. We now know that was Yoki he was referring to. There's no doubt Yoki's clear thinking and decisive actions saved several lives that night. But despite that, he spent years poring over the details, tormenting and torturing himself, convinced he could have done more. Well, like I said, like just before I got Neil out, I opened that door and just lied on the ground. So then the door was open. But in a later state, the fire went so fast that the second or the third time, I could not open that door anymore because there was just too much smoke. So I just lie down on the ground and put my ear against the door to listen if I could hear any sounds from people maybe inside. So for me, that's the sad thing. Like later um, eh, thinking no one was there anymore, uh, going outside and seeing everyone on that uh, edge standing near the balcony at the butchers. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that I had difficulties with. Uh, there's one difficulty I had for myself later, knowing that there were more people there, knowing that some of the people were actually lying there close to the exit. But most, what for me was quite difficult was uh, Neil escaped from the same room Adam and Sebastian were in. And that room was maybe just two meters away from me, maybe three in max. And knowing that they were there still, um, yeah, really hurt me a lot. And it took me a long time before I could sort of give that a spot and thinking, yeah, I couldn't have done anything. Um, so, uh, yeah. Surely you didn't blame yourself for that though, Yoki. In the beginning, yes. You cannot help it, you know, just thinking, uh, could I have done more? <laughs> What's the distance of, let's say, three meters in normal life? And uh, what's the distance between life and death? For me, I couldn't help it. Think about that and hoping that I could have done more. It took me years to give that a place and knowing that I could have done any more than, than I tried to do. Because probably if I would have been more clear-minded and thinking, oh, there are more people in there and I would have gone in, maybe we would, have, would not have this conversation. So, um, yeah. Do you think that there were people who lost their life who were, who were outside that door and you simply couldn't hear them? Um, what I've heard is that most people who didn't make it out, uh, died of suffocation. And they were close to the main exit on the first floor. Yeah, there were actually people uh, very close to uh, uh, getting out. But when I got out of my room the last time, I didn't even think of going to have a look 
at that main exit, but you just act at the moment of emergency, like you just act what you think. So what I've seen that night is people in shock. They could not move. They couldn't do anything. You really had to tell them a hundred times to move or they wouldn't. And other people would just go with flow and me and maybe some others were having a sort of an idea, okay, this is going on. But uh, yeah, I had a few thoughts about why didn't I had a look there, but you had no idea what going on. You just got out of your sleep and then suddenly there's a fire, there's an emergency, you have to get out. So yeah, that's what you know at that moment. There's probably a fair chance if you had have gone looking that you might have ended up one of those people who lost their life as well, uh, Yoki. I think there's a fair chance, yeah. Yeah, and I really realized that as well, that there would have been a chance if I would have gone in more that I wouldn't have been so lucky. It's difficult to look at it. You know, like when life gets lost in such a bad way, for me, still, I can only say I wish I could have done more for them. I know now being older, you know, like I can give it a place for myself that it might have not been possible, but still, you always have that question, you know. It's uh, sad that some lives have been lost and they were so close of uh, getting out. Not surprisingly, media from back home in the Netherlands wanted to know more about their ordeal. Rob took on the bulk of the responsibility in the immediate aftermath. I, I got calls from uh, Dutch media and just said, like, how do you get my phone numbers? Like, <laughs> how is this possible? Uh, I remember that I was interviewed and it was also broadcast on CNN. Uh, it was in Byron Bay that I met three Danish girls who just after Byron Bay, they left back to Denmark and they saw me on CNN and uh, they, they started emailing me. It's like, oh, are you fine? And what happened? And, even a cousin of mine, he was in Hong Kong for his work. Uh, he saw me on television there as well. He, he rang my parents in the middle of the night, asking what happened to me because uh, he saw me on television. So, yeah, it's crazy what happens afterwards. It's just, uh, yeah, uh, surreal to be part of it. It wasn't long after the fire that Rob first made contact with Sebastian's family. They had some basic questions about his final days. When he eventually returns home about 10 months later, he paid them a visit with fellow survivor Herco Terra. That was a big thing to us, you know. Uh, we said to each other just before we, we went over there, it's like uh, if the conversation is, is hard, you know, and it doesn't go well, we say uh, thank you, we drink our coffee and go back to the city and start drinking beer. That was our thing. But we came in and we felt like at home almost. And we started to talk. And I think we left that night at 3.30 or something. Wow. They, they had all kinds of questions like, uh, how do you arrange a hostel? Or where do you do your laundry? How do you get your food? How do you cook? All kinds of things. Those questions, they want to be answered because they never had the chance to get the answers of Sebastian themselves. We visit them quite frequently and I just go, um, if I felt like I just 
drop by and go for a coffee and then uh, I would leave again and we would talk about normal things in life, not only about Sebastian, but um, we both needed that. I, I wanted to know who Sebastian was so they could give me that information and they wanted to know what uh, Sebastian's life was the months, weeks before he died. And I could give them their information. So there was, yeah, uh, I, th I think we helped each other quite a lot. Uh, it, it gave them some bit of closure and for me as well. And because of their stories about Sebastian, Sebastian became also a, a, a whole person to me instead of the guy that I knew from uh, the hostel, yeah. which is, of course, not really yeah, like an, uh, a thorough re relationship or anything. So I started to know him after he died. Rob's now married with two kids. His eldest daughter, her middle name, is Isis, a tribute to the people of Childers. He also joined the Dutch military police, inspired by the police work he saw firsthand to bring a conviction in relation to the palace fire. He still remembers getting that first letter of offer to start work on June 23. Uh, I think this is almost like somebody who's being funny. You know, one of the 15 guys or girls that uh, passed away is just being funny to, to, to do this. It may sound far-fetched, but there have been numerous occasions over the past 20 years where the 69 survivors of the fire have had reason to ponder the possibility of divine intervention. Perhaps the most bizarre was played out on television screens across the world. It involved the late Colin Fry, a self-proclaimed medium who became a highly popular television presenter. I've got a gentleman who's trying to link with me. Who was going to go backpacking across Australia? He is telling me that his life was cut out from underneath him. So that's how an episode of Colin's show Six Sense with Colin Fry started back in 2002. At that point, just like always, every episode, someone in the crowd pipes up and indicates that it is them that they're trying to connect with. In this case, that person is Adam Rowland's best friend, Gary Hyde. Why am I getting this sense of, like, incredible pain in the chest? Um... Tired of smoke inhalation in a fire. At that point, Gary is invited up on stage. There was something that was not accidental about this fire that took him over. That's right. Whoever set this fire, there was two, not one. Right. There were two people that set this fire. Right. Okay, not one. Okay. All right. That seems to be important that he tells you that. One person's been convicted. Well, initially, as, as he first did it, I was drawn into it. I was thinking, oh, wow, and really, really believing it. It made me really happy that Adam had supposedly come through to Colin Fry. It's awkward to watch, and certainly not much credibility was given to claims a second person was involved. In the minutes that follow, Gary nods in agreement when Colin implies that Adam had changed his travel plans at the last minute to find himself in Childers at the time of the fire. And he was on the wrong floor as well. Yeah. He shouldn't have been on that floor. 
Gary says it was towards the end of the episode being filmed that he remembered entering a competition about six months earlier for a private reading with Colin. On the form, he had to provide some personal information and write down details of anyone close to him that had passed away. He mentioned Adam. Didn't win, but ended up getting an invitation to be part of the studio audience for one of the shows. It was kind of right towards the end of the reading, if that's what you call it, where it just twigged about the information that the show had been given beforehand. Just made me really, that's when I started to doubt it. You just asked for information about uh, friends and loved ones you'd you'd lost. And uh, yeah, Adam was one of the people on there and I think the circumstances that they were taking away as well. were on the uh, questionnaire so yeah it, it did just make me doubt it I could be completely wrong but it just seemed too too much of a coincidence really you know if it was a bit of a con then it would have been yeah terribly disrespectful really Colin Fry passed away in 2015 I guess it's hard to say for sure what's real and what's genuine with this one I reached out to a former producer of that show to try and source this video, which I'd heard about from one of the survivors. He told me that he's a natural sceptic himself, only ever broadcast stories he thought were legitimate and never had any reason to doubt their authenticity. And then came our own spooky connection. He told me that the reason he'd been a bit slow in helping me out was because at the time I initially messaged him, he was in hospital having a heart operation because his heart had stopped for 30 seconds. He said he hadn't spoken about Colin Fry for years, but woke up surrounded by five nurses and a message from me about Childers and Adam Rowland. Bizarre indeed. These stories have been an absolute privilege to tell. Thank you to everyone who has lent their time, their voice and their memories to this project and to the Bundaberg Regional Council for their support. Make sure you subscribe, tell your friends about the podcast, and please, if you're anywhere near Childers, please do drop into the Palace Hostel Memorial and take a moment to pay your respects to the victims of the fire. This podcast was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran. All the editing, original composition, and sound design provided by the brilliant Zoltan Fecho. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.